0: Our scripture today is 1 Peter 1, 3 through 7. The word of God speaks to us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the Word of God to us.
1: Thank you, Marsha. Good morning. Good morning welcome to Frontline Church on this Memorial weekend. If uh, we haven't met you yet, my name is Brian Elliott and I serve as one of the pastors here and I'm just so honored to bring God's Word to you this morning. As I hear this passage from 1 Peter, I see an old man. I see an old man sitting in a a handmade chair in a darkened, very simple room with a flickering oil lamp. There are lines on his face that show that he has had a hard life, to say the least. His hands are rough, and his countenance is stern. Yet calm and at peace. His eyes are lightened as he pins these words to friends. As we move across the room towards this man, we peer into his eyes and we fall deeper into his memories. Like a good book or a movie, his memories come alive as a story is told. So we need to ask ourselves, why are these words, why are these sentences, why are these truths so deep and rich with meaning? When I first heard these years ago, I might have just responded, that's nice, because I didn't fully catch the depth of what these words were telling us. How did this man encounter these truths and how have they come to mean so much to him? The letter of Peter opens, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. However, he's not merely musing or writing his memoirs, he is equipping believers to run the race well. His letter was written during a time of the reign of Nero and sent to the Gentile Christians who were scattered across the area just north of modern-day Turkey. These ethnically diverse Christians who were under Roman control were suffering persecution, and Peter is encouraging them to endure by giving themselves entirely to God and remain faithful in the time of distress. He is encouraging them with these truths that He has fallen upon, these truths that have held Him fast, and to which He has held fast too. These verses are so filled with meaning and depth that we can find it hard to believe what we're hearing. Much like those in His day, we see these incredible, powerful truths of the gospel. For instance, He has caused us to be born again. He has caused us to be born again. We have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It is kept in heaven for us. By God's power we are being guarded through faith, and we will see the fullness of our salvation as it is revealed in the last time. For now we rejoice, but we are grieved and tested. Our faith is being made genuine. It is being purified to be more precious than gold. And on that last day, that great day, we will offer praise to God at the revelation of Jesus Christ who has brought us unto Himself. Gosh, this is amazing. It is so very significant that Peter wrote this. It makes these words mean so much when we learn about Peter, when we see him, we step into his journey. When we consider his life and his experiences with Jesus, how did Peter come to write so weighty and meaningful truths in just a few sentences? Let's look at his journey. Peter was raised in Galilee, and like all young children, he attended school in a synagogue at the age of five or six, and these pupils either stood around the teacher or sat around in a semicircle and learned from the rabbi. These schools were called the house of the book. And they learned the five books of the Torah, which included Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. When a young boy reached the age of 12, he was considered to know the law enough to keep it and become a son of the law. At 12, they would study more complicated interpretations of the Torah and applications to life. They would memorize, and they would have question and answer sessions with the rabbi. At 13, they would become a religious adult. Peter went through this schooling and was under the watchful eye of the rabbi. Now, one of the two things would happen after a boy turned 13. The gifted boys who excelled would be chosen by a rabbi to travel with them to study further in what was called a Beth Midrash, which is the uh, house of study. Some truly gifted and intelligent students might even be chosen by a famous rabbi and become a Talmud or a disciple with the goal of becoming like their rabbi, learning and applying the wisdom of the Torah. Now in his graduating class, as it were, there were gifted and intelligent students, and then there was Peter. There were those boys who had, were highlighted and picked out of the class, who excelled, who stood out, who caught the rabbi's attention, who showed promise, and then there was Peter. Those gifted students were invited to further study, travel, potential prominence, and opportunities for respect and leadership in the Jewish community. However, those who didn't show promise were basically told, don't call us, we'll call you. The rabbis considering and selecting their future disciples might have said something like this to Peter, Peter, we think it's best for you to return to your father and learn the business of being a fisherman. We think you've come as far as you can go. Peter was passed over. He was overlooked. He was not chosen. I think to some degree I can imagine the feeling that Peter might have had, because as hard as it is to believe, as a kid, I was really shy, quiet, and a bit of a social misfit. I've got a picture of me, that's I am. Woo, yeah. I remember being that awkward kid in elementary school standing among the other boys at recess, waiting to be picked to play baseball. I was like that kid in the movie The Sandlot. Yeah, that kid. Good old squints. There I stood and waited while others were picked by the self appointed baseball captain to play on their team as the group of hopeful ball players grew smaller and smaller. I would be among the last to be reluctantly picked to play ball. Now, for my sake, everyone say, Aww. Thank you, I feel better already. I can imagine Peter being overlooked and returning to work with his dad to catch fish for a living. He must have thought that life and adventure had passed him by. I guess I'm not cut out for anything more than this, he might have used. But day after day, night after long night, he toiled alongside his dad as a fisherman for several years. Then one day, something truly incredible happened. He was working as usual along with his dad, and there came Jesus, the rabbi, Peter, smelling a fish in the Sea of Galilee, sweaty from hard work, with hands rough from mending nets, heard this unbelievable invitation. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, speaking of Jesus, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. This was mind-blowing. Peter had long been passed over and overlooked with no opportunity for advancement or training, settling for being a fisherman. But now, this rabbi comes and says, follow me. Oh, heck yeah, I'll follow you. And the Scripture highlights this excitement because it, it says, immediately, they left their nets and followed him. They didn't even have to give it a thought. This was Peter's big chance, his big breakthrough to make something of his life. He had been personally chosen by a rabbi to follow him, but not just a rabbi, the rabbi, Jesus himself. Peter had thought that this opportunity had long since passed him by. He must have thought, this is my big chance. I can't blow it. We can easily imagine the pressure to perform and prove himself For look how many ways Peter was always striving to be the best and to gain the recognition of Jesus. In Matthew 14, we see the instance where Jesus is walking on water alongside the boat as they're fighting through the waves. And Peter, along with the other disciples, are are scared in the boat. And Jesus said, this is me, it's, it's, it's me. And Peter says, if it's you, then bid me to come. Now, I can only imagine the other disciples going, oh my gosh, oy vey. there goes Peter again, showing off, I'm glad that's not me doing that, because he's going to make a fool out of himself. He steps out of the boat and he walks on water. And the other disciples are, dang it, I wish I would have been the one to do that. And then, of course, he starts to sink, and the disciples are again, oh wait, never." on second thought, I'm sure glad that wasn't me doing that. And he says, save me. And Jesus reaches down and brings him into the boat. And in my mind, in my religious background that the Lord has had to meet me in, I always felt like the Lord just kind of spoke harshly to Peter. Peter, you're such a loser. I should just let you drown. Why did you doubt? But really what I think Jesus said, because the words are hard to capture the emotion, Peter, you did it. Peter, you walked on water. That's fantastic. I'm so proud of you. Why did you doubt? You had it. Another time, Peter, James, and John's were on the mountaintop with Jesus, and Jesus' face and His clothing became brilliant white. Moses and Elijah were with Him. Peter, who was half awake, blurted out, Lord, it's so good for us to be here. Man, this is great. Let us build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And it says in the Scriptures, for he did not know what he was saying. Isn't that true of Peter. He didn't know what he was saying. He just blurted something out. And then a voice from the cloud said, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And then it says, he kept silent. Peter went out among the seventy-two ahead of Jesus and cast out demons. This is Luke 10. When they returned, he exclaimed with several others, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Jesus celebrated with them, but then he said, be cautious. Don't rejoice that demons listen to you, but rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life in heaven. Peter was also the first to proclaim of Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus called Peter the rock on which I'll build my church. That must have felt great. That must have made Peter feel super important. But when Jesus spoke of his suffering and his impending crucifixion and death, Peter being the rock after all, who knew better, said, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. And Jesus had to rebuke him and even said, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. That must have stung. Peter, you're the rock. Oh, get behind me, Satan. Your mind is not on the things of God. In John 13, when Jesus took the form of a servant and washed the disciples' feet, Peter again blurted out, no, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. And when, Peter, when Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me, Peter jumped in with both feet, as it were, and just said, wash all of me. Wash my hands and my feet, my, my, my head, all in. When the soldiers came to take Jesus away on the night that he was betrayed, Peter quickly grabbed a sword and cut off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Jesus healed the man and then rebuked Peter, saying, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? In several places in the Gospels, we see these really crazy arguments among Peter and the other disciples on regarding who was the greatest, who was the most important of the disciples. And Jesus had to call him out on it. You don't understand what you're doing or who you are. When Jesus foretold that he was going to be betrayed and the disciples would leave him, Peter boastfully blurted out, Though all fall away from you, I will never fall away from you. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. So we see that Peter, that boy who was not chosen, That boy who had his big chance, that young man, that fisherman had his big chance, was an overachiever. I have got to prove myself. I have got to earn this. I've got to prove. I've got to perform. I can't blow this chance. He was darn well going to make sure he didn't miss it and make a name for himself. Everything was up and to the right. Bigger and better, more faith, more prominence, more importance but then this is where our story changes. Jesus said these sobering and very confusing words, and let's imagine if He spoke these to us, what that would feel like. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you even know me. This encounter with Jesus and these words would haunt Peter. It would hold a mirror before him of of the reflection of shame, of failure, of broken promises, fear, and rejection of the one that had called him. No longer was following a Jesus, following Jesus, a path to bring to things bigger and brighter, but into darkness and brokenness. Oswald Chambers, in his really good devotional, "My Utmost for His Highest," says this. He calls it the discipline of dismay. Mark ten thirty two says, as they followed him, they were afraid. At the beginning, we were sure we knew all about Jesus Christ. It was a delight to to sell all and to fling ourselves out in the hardihood of love. But now, we're not quite so sure. Jesus is on in front of us, and He looks strange. Jesus went before them, and they were amazed. There is an aspect of Jesus that chills the heart of a disciple to the core and makes the whole spiritual life gasp for breath. This strange being with his face set like flint and his striding determination strikes terror into me, for he is no longer counselor and comrade. He is taken up with a point of view that I know nothing about, and I am amazed at him. At first, I was confident that I understood him, but now I'm not so sure. I begin to realize there is a distance between Jesus Christ and me. I can no longer be familiar with him he is ahead of me and he never turns around. I have no idea where he's going and the goal has become strangely far off. Jesus Christ had to fathom every sin and every sorrow man could experience and that is what makes him seem so strange. When we see him in this aspect, we do not know him. We do not recognize one feature of his life and we do not know how to begin to follow him." He is on in front, a leader who is very strange, and we have no comradeship with Him. The discipline of dismay is essential in the life of discipleship. The danger is to get back to a little fire of our own and kindle enthusiasm at it, a reference to Isaiah 50. When the darkness of dismay comes, endure it until it is over, because out of it will come that following of Jesus, which is unspeakable joy." In the life of each of disciples of Christ, each of His followers, there comes a time and place when we learn not to trust in our own ability to follow Him, when we learn that this is not my story, it's His. As Paul wrote, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Second Corinthians 4 says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So, all of us, as we follow Christ, life and circumstances will sift us like wheat, and the invitation is to draw near to the Lord and walk through the, the dark night of the soul, the discipline of dismay. My own personal story in this was years ago, I was in business with a couple of brothers. Uh, We had a small business that began to grow and grow, and one of them was an elder in the church, someone that I served with and knew very well. And I had been offered a partnership in the business, and I put some stock. I bought a few thousand dollars of stock in the company and became a partner. And as time went on, promises were broken, and I felt betrayed, and I felt wronged, and I felt... uh, I, I felt the justice that I wanted from the Lord. Lord, will you judge this situation? Make it right. And I remember so clearly a, a, a pastor of ours who was moved in, in prophetic gifting, someone we trusted. He came to me. He did not know the situation. He prayed for me in our group, and he said, you have been wronged. You, you carry a lot of fire, and uh, the Lord sees it and here's where I thought it was going to go. I see your pain. I see you've been wronged. I'm going to judge them, and I'm going to make this right. That's where I thought it was going to go. Where it really went was he said, the Lord's in this, and I've touched a nerve in your heart. I want to heal. My reaction was, my heart? Why does this have to do with me? They're the one who wronged me. But he then took me to Romans 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that was a moment in my life, a season in my life, where I realized the kind of love that you're asking of me, Lord, I don't have the kind of mercy you're asking me to move in, I don't have. I felt sifted. I felt the ugliness of my own heart. I felt like Peter." Watchman Nee was a Christian pastor in communist China who suffered greatly for his faith and was imprisoned in 1952, and he died in that same prison in 1972. Several of his letters were smuggled out, and he wrote this, "'Brothers, God now has no other goal than to bring you to an utter end. God allows His children to struggle now in order that they might see the uselessness of their struggling. He allows them to approach a dangerous position day after day. For He is now awaiting for them to be exhausted and deem themselves about to die. He is waiting for them to surrender to Him and reckon that unless God saves, they cannot sustain themselves even for one more second. Unless God saves, they will die. So now we move forward in our story with Peter and Jesus. And after Jesus was uh, crucified and he rose from the dead, we're going to walk alongside him on the beach. After Jesus was crucified and it felt like the worst had happened and all hope was gone, Peter returned to what he knew. He was only a fisherman after all. Gone was a vision of grandeur and prominence. Peter says, I'm going fishing. He invites the other disciples to go. I'm going back to the only thing that I know how to do, for all is lost. I've ruined everything else. I've ruined my chance. I've denied the one who told me to follow Him. I thought following Jesus was my big break, but now I've destroyed it. As Peter and the disciples went fishing and caught nothing all night long, They came in tired early the next morning, and there was Jesus on the shore. I don't know if we fully catch the irony and the incredulous nature of this scene. Jesus, the God-man, fully God, fully human, betrayed, tortured, crucified, died and buried, now gloriously risen from the dead, worshipped by all of heaven, the name above every name, that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord, is making breakfast for His disciples. These very disciples who all fell away left Him, and there He is making breakfast on the shore. William J. says this, "'Who is like unto You, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like You, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? May we approach You with humility which is due.'" to your greatness, and the hope that becomes your goodness. For though you are high, yet you have respect for the lowly, and though continually adored by thrones and dominions, principalities and powers, yet you despise not the prayers of the destitute, but will hear their prayer. Is this not the one worshiped by the elders and the living creatures and the angels, as they cried out, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty, who was, and who is, and who is to come. He really is gentle and lowly of heart. But here upon the shore, Jesus has a conversation with Peter. It says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus asked this question three times. Having just denied Jesus just a few days earlier, this question would have stung. It would have reminded him of all the guilt and shame that weighed so heavy upon him. Jesus, looking Peter in the eyes, asking, do you love me, would have no doubt reminded Peter of his denials where he said, I don't even know who this guy is. I have never met him when Jesus looked at him and went to the cross." The weight and the shame and failure was crushing. This conversation, this questions back and forth between Jesus and Peter become more significant when we consider that there are actually two Greek words at play here, agapeo and phileo. Now, I'm not trying to impress you with my knowledge of another language. I only know a few of these words, and the rest of it's all Greek to me. I'm sorry, bad dad jokes slip out once in a while. The first is agapeo, which means to love dearly, covenantal love, selfless love. I stand with you unconditionally. The kind of love that Peter thought he had, the kind of love that he boastfully declared that he had, when he said, I will die with you, only to have this promise ring hollow and now accuse him of failure, rejection, fear, and disloyalty. Jesus was asking Peter for something that now Peter knew he did not have. The next love is phileo, brotherly affection. Love that is convenient. It doesn't really cost me anything. When it's good, it's good, but when something better comes along, I'll tell you that I have other plans, that I'm busy. It is a love that is self-serving, shallow, noncommittal, it is a love that makes me feel good. So here in this dialogue, here in these questions, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love agapeo me? Do you love me with the kind of love that is unconditional, that you stand with me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. The second time, Jesus asks him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you agapeo me more than these? And he said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. So, two words of love being tossed back and forth. Jesus saying, do you love me with unconditional, undying love that is covenantal, that you'll stand with me? And Peter, feeling the sense of his own shame, says, Lord, you know that's not the kind of love I have. I, I have brotherly affection for you. I'm not even confident that I could love you that way. Now, here's the beautiful thing of this passage. The very last time that Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? He says, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Do you have brotherly affection for me? Do you love me like this? And Peter was grieved in spirit, and he said, yes, Lord. You know that I phileo you. You know the kind of love I have. It's a mixture. It's, it's broken. It's shallow. It's insignificant. It's, it's, it's not strong. I've already denied you. Jesus doesn't scold Peter. He doesn't look upon him with disdain or disgust or shame. He doesn't tell Peter, that's not good enough. you got to love me this way, and this way is not good enough. Your mixture is not good enough. He doesn't do that. He instead steps towards Peter and says, do you follow me? Do you love me in this imperfect love? He meets Peter where he is. If the only love that Peter has is an imperfect, mixture, self-serving, non-committal love, Jesus will take it. He'll receive that. When he finally asks, do you love me in this way? Again, Peter confronted with his own brokenness says, yes, Lord. You know that's how I love you. Then Jesus says something amazing. And I have always read this as a rebuke. I've always read it as Jesus telling Peter, Peter, because you denied me, you're going to get yours. You're going to get what's coming to you. I always felt the harsh tone of this. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Look at John 21. Truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then he said said this to show what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And then he said, follow me. In essence, Jesus is saying, you only have phileo love for me now. You only have a mixture of love that's weak and broken, that sometimes is self-serving. But I'll tell you the truth, I'll meet you where you are. And because through the working of my Holy Spirit, and the transformation into my image, you will have the kind of love, the agapeo, that is unreachable now. You will have the agapeo because I will give it to you. I will work it in your character and in your being, where you'll walk in that love that you can't possibly perform for now. True to what Jesus said, when he was old, years after he wrote this letter boldly saying that we have an inheritance that is unspoiled. Peter was taken away and ultimately martyred for his faith in Christ. He who denied him, whose love was imperfect and quickly broken off, would stand with Christ after all at the end of his days. He was transformed in the image of God's beloved Son to be like him. His execution was ordered by the Roman emperor Nero who blamed Christians for the terrible fire that ravaged Rome. But Peter requested that he would be crucified upside down as he felt unworthy to die in the same manner as Christ. So, he whose love was imperfect, like me, was so worked by the Holy Spirit and so moved and so met by the Lord that his love became agape. That's the promise for all of us. We come to the Lord and He never says, that's not good enough says, I'll take you where you are. I'm going to deposit. I'm going to invest my Holy Spirit. You have an inheritance that can't be stolen or corrupted. Peter knew of this inheritance that could not be spoiled, could not be corrupted. He was kept sure. He no longer trusted in himself, but Christ and Christ alone. Gone was the boasting in himself, his own ability to follow Jesus by his own performance and strength, and in its place was the boasting in Jesus alone. So let me ask you this, I'll give you a couple of questions as we reflect on this. Where do you identify with Peter? Where in his story do you identify with him? Do you have that pressure to keep holding it together, to keep running fast, to keep performing and trying to to uh, do everything right and hold it together and don't want to blow it? Want to make sure that you dot every I and cross every T? Or do you felt like you've blown it already, that there was a season when you loved the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and you felt the fire of the Lord, and now you're in a place where I don't know if I feel that anymore. God meets us there. It's not about us. We're not the center of our own story. Or have you settled up? Have you settled and thought, well, I'm going to go fishing? I don't know if I'm going to go through the motions or I just kind of feel numb. The Lord wants to meet us there and enliven us with His joy and His His Spirit. What do you imagine the Lord would say to you at this point in your journey of following Him? Do you see a harsh, demanding Savior with His arms crossed, His eyes stern? Let the Holy Spirit speak to you that His love is so for us, He moves towards us. He's given us freely all things. It says of Jesus in Psalm 45 that He had joy more than His contemporaries, that He was, yes, a man of sorrows, but a man of joy as He looks at His people. With that in mind, where do you feel the invitation of the Lord? Where do you feel He's calling you to know, to partake, to taste and see that the Lord is good, that He has joy over you? Let me read uh, 1 Peter again, having kind of journeyed through Peter's experiences with Jesus, and see if these words mean something a little bit more than they did when we first started. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, it is undefiled, it is unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, no longer in us, but in Him, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen.